Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Brewer Arts decided on a policy of excellence through specialisation when he set up his own project, Rart's Family Wines, in 2000, focusing on what were then two unfashionable grapes, Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc. Our discussion covered the unique granite-based terroir of the Polka Dry Hills, what he learned from long lunches as an intern in Tuscany, how he created the iconic Emar de Compostela, and his honorary status as a semi-petrol head. Hi, Bruer. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Tim. Uh, I'm here in um, the cloudy and cold Polka Dry Hills in Stellenbosch in South Africa, and it's lovely to talk to you this morning. It's been a wet year, hasn't it? Indeed, uh, um, you know, uh, we discussed it and uh, it's probably, you know, uh, unconfirmed, probably one of the wettest year, winters we had in, 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 uh, um, in 100 years, you know, from recorded history. So it's definitely up there at least with one of the wettest yeah. year. Listen, as ever, lots of stuff to talk about, you know, Chenin Blanc, Cabernet Franc, Polka Dry Hills. Let's begin a little bit about you and your family because your brother's a winemaker, your cousin's a winemaker. Was your dad a winemaker too? Um, my dad was not a winemaker, but he, he grew up on a farm in the, in the, in the Klein Karua and um, both my grandfathers and all going back uh, was in agriculture. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, both from the Brevet, from my mother's side and from my father's side, the Rats family definitely were in agriculture and farmers. So I think it, it's, a, it's a deep-rooted sort of uh, um, family that, that, yeah. that came from agriculture. It's, it's in your DNA then, isn't it, farming? Very much so. And, and, and you know, uh, um, I think they've, they've played a big role in establishing certain agricultural unions and, and uh, a network in South Africa. We were definitely uh, a help to build agriculture in South Africa over the last 300 years. And was wine part of your life growing up? I mean, did you, was your dad a wine drinker? Very much so. Uh, um, you know, he, he gave us, he never, he always gave us an option. Uh, obviously, later on, uh, um, you know, my brother and I <laughs> got quite fond of it, and we would, you know, we would probably drink more than he would like. But but now, definitely, um, we, we he exposes us to us, and 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 he was very much, you know, uh, uh, that you should enjoy the food, and that wine should be not just a drink, you know, that it's a little bit, there's something more to wine than just an alcoholic drink. You yeah. Know? And, and your mum, was your mum a wine drinker? I mean, she was a good chef, was it? Was all a good cook, yeah? Yeah, no, for sure. And and um, uh, she she definitely enjoyed a glass. She, <clears throat> when she was older, uh, very funny, I I had a, a tank of, of Chenin Blanc that was not uh, 100% dry and I brought her a little bottle and she tasted it and it had a bit of sugar left and she said, she said, Brevet, this is the best wine you ever made in your life. You should make more wine like this. 
I mean, you, you studied viticulture and enology at Elsenburg Agricultural College, didn't you? Not at Stellenbosch Uni. The two places are quite different, are they? I mean, a lot of winemakers have been through through not both at the same time, but one or the other. How do they differ, Elsenburg Agricultural College and Stellenbosch University? Um, I think Elsenburg is much more <clears throat> sort of practical. You know, you go to class in the morning and in the afternoon you work in the cellar or you work in the vineyard and, and it's very hands-on. Uh, um, so for me, that was very practical. Uh, it was the best place to go to. Where Stellenbosch University, you do, do BSc. Uh, um, and for the first two years, it's very academical. It's only in their third year that the, that the viticulture and knowledge students start, uh, um, you know, uh, focusing on wine subject and that and and that's also good i mean there's a purpose for that uh, um and and some people choose more the academical route and and you know but but i chose the practical route because uh, i i thought i always thought and I, I i still believe that you know winemaking is like a trade you have to learn it you know you have to be hands-on and actually be able to do it yourself yeah, it's a craft in a way, yeah. Hundred percent, and and yeah. that 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 for me was was uh, the obvious choice. I mean, when you graduated, it was nineteen ninety five. I mean, South Africa just come through its first democratic elections, and Mandela was was president. Well, what sort of shape was the wine industry in in nineteen ninety five? Tim, when I arrived at Elsenberg as a first year student, they got all the guys that wanted to study viticulture and knowledge into one room, and they said, "Listen, yeah." Um, there's not enough jobs for you guys. There's way too many people, and um, our, our whole industry was little a closed circuit, you know. And 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 there was like we were isolated from the rest of the world. We couldn't export except the KWV, and um, they encouraged us to actually leave. And they told us this very bleak sort of future for us. And about forty percent of the class got up and took fruit and vegetables and, you know, uh, uh, whatever they wanted to do. And, and we were left 60 guys in the class. And, and I think, um, you know, only, only of that class, only 12 of them actually finished and became winemakers. The rest went into viticulture and then uh, the 12 of us went through and, and became winemakers. And you, 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 know, you worked at three wineries, didn't you? Before you, before you set up your own thing. So you worked at Blauklippen, you worked at Delaire Graf, you worked at Sorgfleet. What, what did you learn from working in those different places? I mean, were you sort of refining what we could call the Brouvertes style in those years? Um, you know, I, I definitely, but but I think where I actually learned the most is after I left Elsenberg in '95. I had four places in my mind very clear to actually go and work at. The first was Bordeaux, to learn about classical winemaking. Um, the other place was Napa Valley, uh, or uh, US for that matter. Of course, they had, UC Davis just was so ahead with, they had the money for research. They were just so far ahead of the rest in terms of research. And and, and I did that. Then I worked in Germany, um, uh, in, the, in the Rheinhessen with Jürgen Hoffmann, where I basically learned about systems and how to run a cellar and a vineyard and operation properly. And then I thought there's, there's one more place I want to go and work, and that was in Italy, to learn how to enjoy the wine industry. And, and <clears throat> you know, I took all those elements, that sort of classical winemaking, uh, um, technology and research, uh, um, systems, precision, how to run a, a cellar and a vineyard properly, but also how to enjoy it, that human element what was very interesting is that 
all the other places I worked, except Italy, I started my day in the cellar. In Italy, I started my day in the vineyard. So the villagers would come down. It was a small little winery. We would harvest the grapes. When the first load were finished, we all got on it. I got on a tractor, drove it to the cellar, and that's where the winemaking actually started. So, uh, um, you know, and, and we would stop 12 o'clock. Um, Santino, which was 53, wore a Ferrari cap wrong way around, said stop. We had lunch for two hours. We drank two bottles of wine and two o'clock we start again. You know, it was just for the first uh, three weeks of harvest, I was completely drunk after lunch. But, yeah, but you, you know, that was just a wonderful. And I, I, I came back to South Africa. So when I started Rod's family wines, you know, I wanted to incorporate those elements into my small little family winery. And I think looking back 23 years later, hmm. I think that you'll find that element in our business today. And, and you know, I, I, I think we've managed to sort of use that as a basis hmm. to create a South African winery, but had some very international inputs and, 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 and um, elements in it as well. Yeah, so a bit of Bordeaux, a bit of the Napa Valley, a bit of Germany, a bit of Italy. But you, you set up your own wine, as you said, Rats Family Wines in 2000, and you bought land, didn't you? I think in 2004 in, in the Polka Dry Hills, which is where you are, and you're very much identified with the Polka Dry Hills. I mean, was the region as well known then as it is now? It's pretty famous now, isn't it? Especially for things like Syrah and Cabernet Franc and Chenin Blanc. Was it well known then? Um, no, not at all. Uh, it was the cheapest agricultural land and, um, you know, the, the first wine we made for Rods was Chenin Blanc that came, and it was not called Polka Dry Hills. It was just part of Stellenbosch. Uh, um, we, people called it Polka Dry Hills, but, but it wasn't official. So, uh, um, you know, and, and the first grapes, Machinen that I started Rods on came from here. So I, I saw this, you know, it was uh, th- this beautiful granitic soil, it was proximity to the coast. It had a bit of altitude. It had mostly south-facing slopes. And, you know, I, I, I was just amazed by the quality and, and the subtleness and, the, and that this area had to offer. Um, to be quite honest, uh, um, it was the cheapest agricultural land in Stellenbosch. How cheap we are we talking? Oh, Fifth of the price? 250,000 rand a hectare compared to... Uh, uh, Banuk, Helderberg, Simonsburg, <clears throat> that was going for a million rand a hectare. So it was about uh, uh, 20%, 25% of the price. Also what happened at that stage, a lot of corporate money came into our industry that started buying up farms and making wines. And they obviously, uh, they uh, uh, inflated the price a lot because these guys obviously uh, um, were buying and bidding against each other. So, and, and with the likes of Waterford, Tukara, Telegraph, I mean, these people paid really top dollar for, for, um, for the, for the land. And, um, a very funny story is that, um, after I bought the little farm here, um, a very famous winemaker from Helderberg came to me and said, Brevet, are you crazy? Why do you buy in Polka Dry Hills? You know, you're sort of a good winemaker. Why do you go down there? And, and um, he said to me, look, if Stellenbosch was a human being, um, you know, Helderberg was the heart and Banuk was the head and Simonsburg was the belly. You know what parts Polka Dry Hills was is there where the sun didn't shine. <laughs> so <laughs> it was really sort of disregarded uh, in terms of land price. And because 
we were in a stage then early 2000s and, and well through the early sort of mid where, where, you know, everybody was trying to make these big, bold wines and, and um, sort of, if I may call it, park wine styles. Mm. And that was, it was better suited to other areas in Stellenbosch. Definitely not this granitic soils. I mean, they were more linear. They had more freshness. They showed focus, great acidity, and they showed that beautiful whetstone minerality, which was something that was not necessarily appreciated or, or revered that much. And, and how times have changed. I mean, now, uh, um, you know, I think, Definitely from Rod's family wines point of view, we have always made those wines. You know, if you, I, I actually went and looked uh, and checked myself, but you know, our 2004 and five and six, they had 12 and a half, 13 alcohols, mm-hmm. you know, so and 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 I think the the world have moved towards us. We haven't really changed our style. Uh, um, and when we do verticals, that shows very well. Um, I just think that you know. People now, a general wine drinking public across the world, appreciate more elegance, more understated, more freshness, mm-hmm. and and that is absolutely what we always had to offer. Although it was not necessarily appreciated twenty three years ago when I bought you. I mean, and you decided to focus from the start on Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc. I'd like to talk about the two really, but let's start with with Chenin. Is you, you had this idea of excellence through specialization so you just focus focus on on those two grapes why chenin to start with i mean what sort of shape was chenin at the time was it it was very widely planted obviously but was it held in the same high regard that it is as it is now it, of course it it um, it was very high, widely planted in south africa but for a very specific reason um, the kwv planted it and and uh, just to put it in context the kw was the uh, authoritative body through government to control our industry. Mm. And you could not plant what you like. If you if a farmer wanted to plant something, he applied to the KWV and then they came back and told him what to plant. And they looked at a little sheet and said, we need a columbar or we need a chin and blanc. Or we, this is what we needed and that's what the farmer had to plant. So there was no planning from that point of view. So chin and blanc was planted widely across South Africa, purely for uh, a brandy production and also to produce a, a cheap sort of bulk wine. The whole industry was volume-driven. Um, and I looked at Chenin Blanc and I was exposed to Loire Chenins and I said, what are we doing wrong in South Africa? You know, if you have a thoroughbred horse and you train it like a working donkey, for sure you're not going to win the race. But so our problem was not that we had a donkey. We had a thoroughbred horse, but we were training it like a, like a, 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 a working horse. And, and that was the result we got. So I knew that there was nothing wrong with Chenin Blanc. It's just the way we treated it in South Africa. And old vines from the start? Did you go looking for old vines? Well, the old vines were there, but not always in the right place, right? Very much so. And, and so I founded Rod's Family Wines on old vines, finding in particular in Stellenbosch, and that's how I ended up in Polkadra Hills as well, uh, um, you know, finding these lovely old vines, making wine from it, and that was sort of the basis of it. One thing that also attracted me, except for Chenin Blanc, is the fact that, you know, everybody already claimed all most of the varieties in the world. So in terms of white, I mean, 
uh, um, Loire and, and and New Zealand have claimed Sauvignon Blanc. You know, Chardonnay was claimed by California, Australia, Burgundy. So on all those varieties, we'd have been third, fourth, even sixth in the queue in trying mm. to make them wonderful. But nobody from the New World have taken Chenin Blanc and made it their own. So we had here the opportunity, similar to what Argentina did with Malbec, Mm-hmm. or what New Zealand did with Sauvignon Blanc to go and claim Chenin Blanc to be ours. And that, I must say, was a, was so you could come first in the race. You wouldn't have always you come first in the race. Exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. you could also send, set the trend in the world of what a, a South African Chenin Blanc should taste like. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we had we had more than 50% of the world Chenin Blanc plantings. We had vineyards. We've been growing it here for over 300 years, so we knew it, it suited our conditions well over a wide range of areas, which are very apparent today. I mean, you get fantastic Chenin Blanc almost from every area in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that was that to me was sort of, I, at least I knew that I could enter a race where we can potentially come first. Yeah, you had a chance of winning. And what about Cabernet Franc? Because Cabernet Franc wasn't planted until when? The 80s? Uh, 80-something? 86, yeah, 87? Uh, uh, 78. Uh, um, uh, 78, sorry, earlier. Yeah, but, but I mean, uh, beginning 80s, fair mm. enough. Uh, and and uh, the first wine were probably made early 80s. Um, the, the thing is, I was working as my first job, um, 96. I finished in Elsenburg in 95 and I started at Blauklippen and um, we had 26 different varieties that we worked with and then after the harvest I went to the cellar master and I said sir I think this Cabernet Franc is the best wine in the cellar and he said Brevet you're right it is. I said well why don't we bottle it? It, it? We blend it with the Shiraz, we blend it with the Pinot Noir, we blend it with everything in the cellar to make it better. Why don't we just bottle Cabernet Franc? And he said Brevet we must be realistic here is that you know uh, it's seen as a blending variety um, and people see the name Cabernet and Franc and th- associated with bitter for not knowing better mm-hmm. and um, he said it will never work. He said we, we must just that's what we're going to do and I thought to myself, one day I'm going to have a winery and I'm going to make Cabernet Franc because I just love it. I just love Cabernet Franc. It had the elegance of Burgundy. It had that spicy element, not the same, but it had that uh, spicy element to Rhone, but it still had structure and and, and, and acidity, uh, uh, the best of Bordeaux. So for me, as a single variety, you have elegance, you have spiciness, you have structure, you have freshness. What do you want more from a red wine? And and that's why I, I, I absolutely just fell in love with Cabernet Franc. You know, but uh, <laughs> you must be careful what you wish for because Cabernet Franc, as we all know, is a difficult variety to grow and it's very, very soil specific. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't do well. If, if you plant it on the wrong soil or conditions, it really punishes you severely, more so than most other varieties. It is not as forgiving as Cabernet Sauvignon, its mm-hmm. child, or as Chardonnay or uh, even Chenin Blanc that can really adapt to a lot of different climate conditions. So mm-hmm. um, I, I then realized that, you know, uh, uh, traveling the world and being to the Loire uh, uh, that, you know, Polkadry Hills with his granitic soils, which is well drained, not too fertile, and and that have um, 
you know, was perfect for Cabernet Franc. And, and so there my story started. And how many Cabernet Francs are there now in South Africa? I mean, when you started, there were a handful? You could count them literally on one hand. And, and even then, most of them didn't make it every year. They only made it in exceptional years. Uh, um, and we had a terrible, the first clones that came in were absolutely terrible. Uh, um, that clone one was useless. But um, the, the, today there's over 80 producers. So Cabernet Franc have definitely grown a lot. Um, we have got a, a Cabernet Franc a challenge where we, you know, people write the, and we just uh, judge it as Cabernet Franc. And then the, um, the other thing is that we, um, we also have a Cabernet Franc festival. So we've done a lot, you know, to promote Cabernet Franc, uh, particularly in South Africa. But uh, I think that very interesting, Tim, uh, last week, I just returned from the, this week now uh, with the CWG. That's the Cape Winemakers Guild, yeah? Cape Winemakers yeah. Guild, that's correct. And, you know, there was more Cabernet Franc, single variety, mm-hmm. and Cabernet Franc blends than Cab this year on the auction. Yeah. That have never happened. I used to be I used to be this sort of lonely country singer uh, out in the country, and I played m- beautiful music, but nobody wanted to listen, you know, and... And now things have changed. People are looking for Cabernet Franc, and and they start to appreciate that elegance and that 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 diversity of of that aromatic nose, the elegance that it has to offer. So, uh, um, you know, things have definitely changed a lot. This will make you laugh. Gary Jordan refers to those as Tim wines. Yeah, <laughs> after me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's talk about another wine that you make, which is M.R. de Compostela. It's one of South Africa's most iconic red blends. It's not a pure Cabernet Franc, although the most recent release was dominated by Cab Franc. You first produced that, I think, in 2004. Correct. How, how did you come up with the idea? And you make it with Emzo Mvenve, who's your, your, your partner in the business. Just tell us a little bit about the, the, the genesis of, of, of the brand and, and what you're setting out to do with it. In 2002, I was on my way and I thought, Brevet, you know what you want to do in life. You want to make Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc and you're going to live happily ever after. Then I got a call from a guy, funny accent, and he said, I couldn't figure it out, you know, because it was quite good, but I I could hear there was an accent involved there. And he said he wanted to come, um, he finished his academical part at the University of Stellenbosch and but he still need to do three months practical for them to award his degree. So I said, come up to the cellar and come for an interview because uh, I, I always uh, use trainees and, and and you know exchange ideas and and, and <clears throat> that sort of thing. And then on a Friday afternoon, this black guy, this very proud, who started walking to the cellar. He had this open face, friendly smile, and. And he was this proud guy, and I just immediately liked him. And I think we spoke for a minute, and I said, you can start on Monday. And he said, how how can you just say I can start on Monday? You know, you haven't spoken to me. And I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a simple bloody farmer. Either, things, either it works or it doesn't work. You know, it's black and white, and I can see we're going to work together. So, And we became very good friends, like I anticipated. Um, and then one night at a braai here on the farm, and we don't use gas if we braai, we use wood. I have to point that out. Um, we, we, um, I, I said to him, and Zoe, if you rub the little winemaking lantern and the winemaking genie appear, what would you wish for as a winemaker? And he said, Brevet, to make a consistent 
ultra premium quality wine from South Africa that you can compare with the best of the world every year that doesn't go up and down and a good vintage is great and, it, and that just sort of consistently are up there with the best in the world. And I said, and so that would have been my wish as well. Let's do it together. Mm-hmm. So that next week we registered the company and VMV, which is his surname, mm-hmm. and Rats, which is mine. So that's where the MR comes from, our two surnames. And <clears throat> I said to him, and so at that stage, everybody was putting little tigers and giraffes and zebras and stuff on the label. You know, I said, that means nothing. What means something if you put your name on something because it means something to you. That means it represents yourself when you put it in that bottle. And secondly, it will mean something to your children one day if they inherit it. And he was 100% with me on that. We call the wine the Compostela which means the constellation of stars, and that describe how we make the wine. So we work with 19 different vineyard plots, over five varieties, Cab, Cabernet Franc, Malbec, Petit Verdot, uh, um, and we, we basically uh, um, make them separate and we mature them separate. And after a year in the barrel, we line them up on a table and um, – we, he runs through them, score them out of 100, and I do the same. We then add our scores up. This is completely blind. We then line them up from the highest average to the lowest average. Everything under 90, we just remove from the table. And whatever comes first will be the leading variety in the wine. So Emma de Compostela is not driven by style, you get people that have a certain style and try to more or less every year create that. You get people that's varietal driven, um, which, you know, either Cab or Merlot dominate their wine or Cabernet Franc, and then they try to use that. So we, whatever is best. It, it varies from year to year, yeah? Exactly. Yeah. So it's the best from that particular year, according to the yeah. two of us. Um the Compostela, we want to call it the constellation because what we say is we make a lot of stars, we decide which is the brightest, and then we compile those stars. But as we know, the, the biggest company in the world is called Constellation. So they would have sued us from Cape to Cairo and probably back if we used to or called the wine Constellation. The only other thing that we could have done was to look at an alternative name, and that would have been, and we found it in the Spanish word de, Compo, compilation, the compilation, Stella. We took a shot and we tried to register it in Section 33. And funny enough, the, the, the things that came up was the municipality of Mexico is called Michipelano de Compostela and obviously Santiago de Compostela. But in Section 33, it was open. So we got the name. So you, you registered the brand? Yeah. In, in the wine section, yes. So, yeah. so that's where the name comes from. That's why we use the Spanish word because we couldn't use the English uh, uh, I see. equivalent. Um, Tell us about another thing you do, which is Bruvert Vintners. And you co-founded that with Gavin Bruvert, yeah, who's your cousin. yeah, uh, And that's a kind of slightly different company in a way, isn't it? And, it, you know, you call it a company of creativity and innovation. Not the what. The rest of you do isn't creative and innovative in its way. But which styles do you make? Because they're slightly different styles. They're, they're, they're slightly more traditional, could you say, in a sense, in terms of the great varieties you're using? It's a, it's a very interesting company, uh, um, Tim, is that Gavin is my cousin, so uh, um, we connected through our mother. So my, our mother's maiden surname was Brevere. So uh, they called him 
Gavin Brewer Slubbert. And th- they called just me Brewer Art. So technically, they, my parents just stuck two surnames together and, and pat the child on the back and said, off you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but he started working with us in 2011. And then when the time was there that he should sort of, uh, you know, spread his wings and go on, he said that he really liked working here and that he would rather start something with me. And and I was I'm very happy for that because he's a absolute brilliant young man and a fantastic winemaker. So uh, um, we started our common sort of uh, ancestral surname, which is Brevere, Brevere Vintners. And what Brevere Vintners does is they take terroir, they take heritage, but they do it in a futuristic way. For instance, we, we take something like Pinotage, but we say traditionally Pinotage was, was produced in a quite big, bold style. The parents of Pinotage is Sinso and Pinot Noir. So what we say is we want to make a Pinotage, which is definitely tells the heritage of South Africa, but we want to do it in a way where it has the structure and the fruit of a Pinot Noir, but have the lightness and the spiciness of a Sinso. Um, in white, we focus on Chenin Blanc blends. I mean, Chenin Blanc, as we spoke about it, has pretty much uh, um, evolved now. And, and I think if anybody says Chenin Blanc, people would say South Africa would probably come up first. Uh, um, but we say, okay, but the next phase is pin, pin, uh, Chenin Blanc blends. So then we <clears throat> so we blend uh, uh, Chenin Blanc with uh, a Semillon. And then uh, we also have... Uh, a Rhone Cape blend. Uh, there's not a category like that, but we take Shiraz, uh, Grenache, and Pinotage and blend it together. So it's a Rhone blend, but it's Cape Rhone blend. The fact that it's got Pinotage in it. So, so different different styles from the from the wines correct. that you're making with Rats wines. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So so Bivinders obviously the focus uh, is on Pinotage. In terms of red, we also have a, 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 um, a method ancestral which I made 100 percent from Pinotage. Mm-hmm. Which we absolutely can't keep up. It just sells like sweet cake, and then You're having a lot of fun, yeah. And then <laughs> and then uh, there's a blanc de noir from 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 Grenache, yeah. and then we have this uh, what we call a Brevere Vintners uh, uh, dry red blend, which is then Grenache, Shiraz, and Pinotage. Then we got Liberté, which is our sort of flagship uh, a Pinotage made in a style that represent the parent varieties, and then Harlem to Hope, which uh, tells the story of uh, um, where the first people that planted grapes in the Cape came from Harlem in Holland, not Amsterdam as we think today. They came to the Cape of Coop Hope. So the name tells a story where they came from, where they went to, and it's a blend of one of the two of the f- first varieties that they planted here, which is Chenin Blanc and Semillon. Okay, listen, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Cape Winemakers Guild because you've just been up in Johannesburg with the tasting. You were elected in 2017 by your peers. You wonder what took them so long. But anyway, what what is it that the Guild contributes to the South African wine scene in your view? Um, so Cape Winemakers Guild has become a very important part of the, the, the history and the future of the, of the Cape industry in the sense that, you know, we have this protege program where uh, a lot of the uh, income that we create from the auction, but also charity auctions, uh, um, donations, we we train the next generation of winemakers. And most of these people come from uh, um, 
they they have the potential, but they didn't have the means, their parents, to actually send them to go and study viticulture and enology. So we've got this protege program, which brings through previously disadvantaged uh, candidates to mm-hmm. enter into our wine industry. We pay for the education. They don't just go out. They work with the winemakers uh, during their three or four years of studies, and a lot of them actually get employed afterwards by some of the producers. So it's really protege with mentorship. Um, so we create basically the next generation winemakers um, that's very representative of South Africa and also gave people from across all the different uh, um sectors of South Africa opportunity to become a winemaker. Um, Which is very important, yeah. Very much so. So I can tell you in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, the demographics of how our industry will look in terms of winemakers is going to change quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's probably the most important part of the Guild. Uh, another thing is that, you know, I was sitting there and I look at people like Kevin Grant, uh, Carl Schultz, uh, um, you know, and I and you know, I just look up to them, their their knowledge, their experience, you know, and I look next to me, I sit with Franz Smith, John Lopesha, Diewald Heinz, Pierre Vol. We were in class together. The five mm-hmm. of us were literally in the same class graduating at Elsenburg. And I think, wow, I ha- I was privileged to actually have these people around me. They pushed me along the way, and I probably did the same for them. And then I look 10 years back, and I see Gordon Newton-Johnson, I see David Sardi, which I actually nominated for the Guild. You know, uh, uh, you see uh, uh, Christo Lerich, uh, um, and, and you think, geez, our industry is in fantastic hands, you know. And that's, I think, what the Guild is. It, it pulls three generations across generational winemakers together where they meet, they taste together, they chat to each other, and we learn a great deal from the generation before me and the generation underneath me. So, you know, it, it's, it's passing information on, in a sense, from one generation to another. 100%. And that, that, is, that is invaluable. And, 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 you know, I don't think, Tim, and, and you would probably know better, but I don't think there's an organisation like this anywhere else in the world. No, you I know, think it's true. Uh, yeah. I think we're very, very unique. And, you know, I, I just see... When, when somebody makes a great wine or stand up and talk, you know, they compliment each other. And people say, mm-hmm. and uh, like Andrea made a Cabernet Franc this year at the auction. This I is said, Andrea Molyneux. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I, mm-hmm. I, I was on the panel selecting it and I gave it a fantastic score. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think there's, there's and, and that support and that feeling part of an industry and a body of excellence. And, I mean, a lot of people get nominated. You can't join it, but... You know, very few actually get selected, and you pretty much know you're among the very best generation among certain elites. Yeah. yeah, but 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 you best winemakers of your generation, but also the one before and below you. Mm. Something I want to ask you is just how you get away from wine. I know you're a great briar. Are, are you a surfer? I mean, there's this good sort of Cape winemakers <laughs> surfing classic, isn't there? I mean, I can't, I'm not sure if I could see you on a surfboard, but are, are you a surfer? Them, you know I'm not, <laughs> but uh, I, 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 you know, I, I've never tried to follow trends and, you know, be hip and hop and, and, and be in with the in crowd. I, I've really sort of followed my own 
my own thinking and, and my own path. And, and I think that was very, very deep embedded by my father. He always said to Brevet, you're not going to inherit money from me, but one thing I'll teach you is to think for yourself. And, mm-hmm. and that's probably one of the biggest gifts he could give me. Um, so, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm very typical South African, you know, I like Brian and I like watching rugby and, and that sort of thing. But, I must say, if I could have been something else, I would have loved to be a racing driver. I absolutely love cars. And getting in a fast car and starting that thing up just gives me a thrill that I i don't know why, I just love it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I must admit, I'm a semi-petrol head. My son, Sam, which is working in the Loire now at, at Charles Hugo, uh, he's a trainee there. He's a totally petrol head. At least I'm a semi. Um, but but uh, I just I just love fast cars. Just It just gives me a thrill. So I would have loved to be a racing driver if I could not be a winemaker. <laughs> and anywhere else in the world you'd like to make wine. I mean, the Loire, obviously, you've never made wine in the Loire. You love the Loire Valley. Is that the place you'd go first if somebody said, hey, Brevere, Here's a ticket. You can go anywhere you want in the world. Tim, I think that's a very leading question, but yes. And and, and not the Loire. I, I, I like Chinon and I like Sumer Champagne. Those are the two areas to me that 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 I the wines that come from there, that's what I drawn to naturally. Mm. And I must say, working in Italy that stole my heart, you know, that, that, and I don't want to go to Bulgaria, the fancy areas and that, you know, just somewhere in Gravy and Chianti, uh, um, making Sangiovese and a little bit of Trabiano on the side. I'm happy to do that. I, it was that know, two-hour lunch, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and definitely, well, I'm going to make lunch three hours, not two. I'm going <laughs> to raise them one. <laughs> okay. If anybody's listening, wants to offer prepare a job in Chianti, he's up for it. Last thing, prediction for the World Cup. Is South Africa going to do it? Because I don't think England is, right? <clears throat> I, I think you're right about England. Uh, um, very interesting, Tim. We have always done well when we were the underdogs. If you look at when we won the World Cup, we were never favourites. We were always sort of. I mean, last year, I don't, I don't. I think we were fifth or sixth rated favourites to win the World Cup. And there's something in South Africans that spring alive. It's activate them when they're underdogs, and everybody write them off. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, we're going in, and definitely are probably in the, with France and Ireland, probably uh, in the top three to win the World Cup. We'll see how that goes. I'm always more. I've got more hope to win the World Cup when we're underdogs. Um, but uh, because I know how they react and they've proven it many times. Um, but I think we've got a very good chance. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, I think New Zealand will definitely still be a factor, although we clutched them completely. Uh, um, and that I must say that was, <laughs> that was nice. That was was part of the World Cup, it was still, uh, you know, you, uh, but, yeah. but I think those four teams, it's going to be, it's going to be a shoot for the end. And of course, uh, you could never write off Argentina. I think they are very strong, uh, dark horse sort of lurking. Well. You never never know. We might see you in the final. But whatever happens, we'll have a glass of wine next time I see you, which will be very soon in Cape Town. And thanks for joining us. It's been great chatting to you. I love your passion for the Polka Dry Hills, for Chanel Blog and Cabernet Franc. Brouvert, love you to chat to you and see you very soon. Bye. Thanks, Tim. Thanks a lot, eh? Cheers. South Africa really does have a lot to thank Brouvert for, not least his champion of Cabernet Franc and the Polka Dry Hills, and I was delighted to name him Winemaker of the Year in my latest South Africa report. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Laszlo Misaros from Disnoko in Tokai. Join me then. 
Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.